We are, as James said in Hebrews chapter 3, and today I found it necessary to use two verses. The, the first verse, of course, could be preached and thus we could see Christ from it and we certainly will. But I, I think that we would do very well to take it with verse 8 to see uh, just the monumental truth of the gospel of Christ and how he speaks to his people. And so what I would like to do is read the, the first few verses and then uh, pray and then and get right into the text. Beginning with verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for testimony of those things which were spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Almighty God, we come to you, Lord, thanking you just for everything that we have and everything that we will have and everything that we have in Christ. For if you had not appointed him, Lord, there would be no Savior for mankind. And we, we come to you this morning, Lord, with a certain hope that Christ is our only way to be reconciled and that we trust in his blood for redemption that it would procure for us that salvation which we so desperately need god we just ask that you would enable us today to see with spiritual eyes the truth that the natural man cannot see in the text of scripture that we would see jesus christ and him crucified and how it has so been applied to us that we are reconciled and that we would see everlasting life and that we would be present with him in the glorious place called heaven. Lord, for we know that the place is wonderful because he is there and because you, O oh God, are there. Lord, and we just ask for your merciful forgiveness and for your long-suffering, God, because we are a people who are constantly sinning or who have no hope apart from this Jesus who is the Christ. Lord, we thank you for him and ask that you would uh, give most abundantly to us today uh, the spiritual truth and discernment and knowledge of who he is and what he has done. Lord, would you be exalted today? Would Christ be lifted up? And we ask that you would receive our worship and bless it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we'll look again here at verses 7 and 8 where it says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. 
the the focus of most of my sermon will be on verse 8 but the reality is that we cannot understand verse 8 verse 8 excuse me if we do not come to terms with what is being said in verse 7 verse 7 says therefore just as the holy spirit says now what we're being told is uh the age old uh, that we've seen many times, therefore, it's there for a reason. And this is the reason that we would consider everything from verses 1 to 6. And even if we want, wanted to take a, a deeper look from Hebrews chapter 1 until chapter 3, verse 6, everything that has been said has been said for this reason. And we looked at it last week. It was talking about Jesus. Consider this, this Jesus, brethren, who is not only a man, but who is the apostle who is the high priest, and to take it even further to the most uh, far out as we can get understanding who Christ is, it, it takes it from Jesus, the man, the earthly name given him, to the apostle, the, the office that he holds, high priest, uh, up until this time, who has always been held, this office, by a man. And then it says, this Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, and so we end last week with understanding those things and we arrive here at verse 7 to see where does this testimony of the Christ come from? Where does the text of Scripture come from? Where does this citation that we see from the Old Testament, where does it come from? Where did it originate? And the text is very clear. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And so what we realize is that anything that has been said of Christ thus far in the text has been said not of man, not of a simple apostle, not of a simple disciple, but it has been said of Jesus Christ by God himself. By the Holy Spirit. And this is the truth that we stand on as Christians, right? This is our ultimate authority that we would appeal to the Scriptures because they come not from man, but that they are breathed and inspired by God Himself through the Holy Spirit. We trust the Bible because it's this collection of books, documents, written by eyewitnesses. Multiple eyewitnesses during the time of Christ, before Christ's incarnation and after Christ's incarnation, during Christ's incarnation, and they testify of the truths that have been prophesied and each one is coming to fulfillment if it has not yet already been fulfilled. And we trust that because only divine insight could provide such information. And so when we look at verse 7 and 8 today, we must start with the basis that the Word is this Jesus Christ who has eternally existed. John said it. John the Apostle, as he wrote in the first chapter of his book about Christ and about John the Baptist, he was telling us that this is no ordinary word that came from man's invention or from man's mind or his thoughts. But this is a word that proceeds from the mouth of God and men shall cling to it and live by it and feed upon it and they shall never forsake from whence it came. And they shall never forsake from who it came. For it is the Holy Spirit just as it is described there. So there's our basis. We're not listening to what a man said because he met Jesus. 
And we're not listening to what a man said because he heard about Jesus, but we're listening to the man, Christ Jesus, as he has been spoken of by the second person, the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, testifying these truths, applying these truths to our minds and our hearts that we may know him and have life in his name. That is the purpose. These people who are receiving this are no ordinary people. They're not the majority. In, in fact, we, we understand that these are the, mon the minority who are receiving this word. How can we say that with confidence? Because we know that the majority of men will sin against God and will never repent, will never trust the word, will never believe the word, and therefore they will face condemnation. But what we have is this small group in its original transmission, these small group of Hebrew people who supposedly, and as we're led to believe, turn from their law-keeping for righteousness, and they turn to Jesus the Christ. And in turning to Christ, they have been given and received salvation in His name and by His blood. And, and for some reason, like every man, these people were wanting to turn back and they were wanting to find some kind of self-righteousness. They were wanting to be justified by any means other than Christ. And so therefore we have from chapter 1 to chapter 3, Christ and all His glory being described for us, how He is saving men. But we see over and over time and time again that man is straying, he's going back, he's turning from the cross, and he is being reminded. And we see it especially from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Being reminded to remember how we were saved. Remember who saved us. Remember what we trust in for salvation. And consider this Jesus, brethren, the apostle, the high priest, the Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit is testifying. And he doesn't testify it to everyone. And as we'll see, this plays in, of course, as to how man understands salvation. It says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. The writer citing Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, and citing the author, the inspiration, the Holy Spirit in the previous verse. And so we'll break this verse down and we'll, we'll notice, first of all, do not harden your hearts. And you think, man, that's just one simple phrase and it, it could mean a lot, but I want to break it down even further. The beginning, today. When? Today. Why is it so important? If we look to the Synoptic Gospels, we see that Christ is preaching Himself, right? The Son of God. Salvation for men. The only way to heaven. The only way to the Father. I and the Father are one. If you want to come to God, you must come through me. And the command, the gospel demands that men repent. And when do they do it? Not when they're ready. Not when they're better. Not when you get things straight. And this is what the church struggles with because a lot of, of, a lot of professing Christians and even those who, who have heard the gospel and who to some degree believe the gospel... They don't want to come to church. Not realizing that the church is actually the people of God. But they don't want to assemble 
because you know I've been bad. I got to get things right. I got to make things good. And the the idea is that what we see from here, even with just a simple word like today, is we recognize the gospel and its influence in the writing here. As the Spirit is testifying these truths, today, the gospel demands today that we submit to the Lord. Consider this text from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why is uh, the word today so important? Because today is talking about this now. This time of salvation. The time that the truths of Jesus Christ have been applied to our lives and we know that we have been saved and we must submit now and forever. But the reality is that man clings to sin in his flesh just as much as the spiritual man should desire to cling to the cross. There is that battle of sin and flesh against the spirit waging war. And unfortunately, it looks too often like the flesh is winning. And we're reminded of this Christ whom we serve. Today is important. We don't have tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised the next sentence of this sermon. But what we do have is Christ who is and was and is to come. Therefore, this today is very important that we would look to it and recognize that as the gospel is being preached by Christ and by his disciples, by John the Baptist, by Peter, by Paul, he never goes in and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and says, you know, tomorrow when you wake up, you better start trusting in this Christ. It's always today, now. The influence is immediate response to the gospel. You know, it, it, it seems so tough to understand these things, but we can, we can take it back and the Lord has given us within the family unit such a wonderful picture of the response to the gospel. It's like the parent and the child. When you tell your child to do something, you're not telling him to do it later, right? You're telling him to do it now. Well, how much so is this true of God as the Spirit is testifying what Christ is expecting of us and what Christ has done for us, what God is demanding when He says repent and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. He's not telling you to do it in the morning when you wait, but He's saying do it now. This is an issue of sin. This is written to these Hebrew people because they are a sinful people. We are a sinful people. Now, today, listen to the gospel of Christ and respond appropriately. How do we respond? We respond with repentance and faith. And then we'll take it a little bit further. Not only does it say today, but it, it goes on to say today, if you hear his voice. Now, whose voice is it? Verse 7 just told us this is the voice of God. This is not the voice of a man who is following Christ. This is not the voice of Paul. This is not the voice of Peter, though they do proclaim this same gospel. This is the voice of God Himself. He's saying, I am sending my messengers to relay not their message, but my message. This is the, the responsibility of the church to bring this message. 
that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the only way to heaven. And therefore, when we see this today, if you hear his voice, you are not hearing the preacher. You are not hearing an elder. You're not hearing a teacher. You are hearing God speak to you about Jesus Christ. And he's saying today, if you hear his voice today, not tomorrow, not the next second, right now, if you hear his voice. How do we know exactly what is being said when he says today, if you hear his voice? Well, I'll tell you. We talked about it last week. When Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? They would say some, Elias, John the Baptist, whatever. They, they, whoever they thought, it was all wrong. Men thought wrongly of who Jesus was. But when he asked Peter, the response that he heard was this. Peter said, you are the Christ. The son of this living God. The one whom we claim to serve. And so what do we see in that? Peter has heard the voice of God. Jesus said it himself. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The reality is what Jesus was saying there is exactly what we see in Psalm, exactly what we see in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Jesus was saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because you have heard His voice. You have heard the voice of God testifying to you that I am not just simply this Jesus of Nazareth. I am not simply a man born of Mary, but I am Jesus the Christ, the divine one, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. You have heard my voice. You know, the Bible really only reveals three options in hearing this message. The response to whatever the Lord is saying in the Scripture. One, you either listen and mock and blaspheme. Or you listen and you hear. And it changes you. And it's not just it. We're talking about the message of the messenger. Christ changes you. Now that's two options. The third option is to be like Adam. And here this is going to hit home for everyone here. That you'll hear the voice of God. And you'll know that he's in charge. And you'll run and hide. We heard you calling and we hid because we were naked. We were hiding because we were shamed for what we thought we were doing behind your back. And I think this third option is really what's being spoken of here. Because remember, this is a message transmitted to a group of believers who have been saved by Jesus Christ, but they were slowly being turned they were being deceived. They were being drawn away from the Christ. They were being drawn away from His righteousness and drawn towards some type of self-righteousness that could not save. And He says, today if you hear His voice, don't be like Adam. And we get this when we get to the part that says, do not harden your hearts. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Here is the, the voice of God testifying 
to his people just what is going on. And we see that. We see that he's speaking and they must listen. This is the response to the gospel. I want to give you some textual citations to further prove this point here. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is to hear the voice of God. And I'll submit to you later, and I'm going to repeat it again. But to harden your heart is to literally not listen. What do your parents say when they tell you to do something? Are you listening to me? Did you hear what I said? Is that not what y'all do? I've heard it a thousand times. This is what God is saying to His children. Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 1 John chapter 1. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. This is the gospel. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is testifying of. This Jesus is the Christ to believe, to be saved by Him. You must repent and turn back. And your sins may be blotted out. This is the message. Acts 3.19 Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Listen. Hear. Proverbs 28.13 Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The response to the gospel. Then we'll combine these first two points. The first being understanding what today means. And then if you hear his voice and we'll combine those things. Today, if you hear. Who heard and who was transformed in one day. In one instant. What what model do we have to understand Today, if you hear His voice, that there may be a change offered. The first person I think of, though He is not the first person to believe in this Jesus and trust in this Jesus, the first example I think of is the thief on the cross. In one, in one uh, a book, in one account, we see these thieves as they're being hung on either side of the Christ, both mocking and blaspheming Christ. In effect, blaspheming the very God of creation. And they do not believe because today they have not heard. But for one, this will soon change. And it's in Luke chapter 23. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Save yourself and us also. But the other answered and rebuked him. Hold on a second. Now this other guy, he was just sitting here mocking and blaspheming Christ and then all of a sudden he's hearing these things that are being said about Jesus and he's not just hearing, but he's listening. These truths have been applied by who? None other than the Holy Spirit. And what we have here is the answer to what we're looking for. What does this mean today if you hear His voice? He says, but the other rebuked Him saying, Dost thou not fear God? Seeing thou art in the same condemnation. 
And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. This man has done nothing wrong. Now they're seeing their own sinfulness, or this one man, he's proclaiming to to himself and to the other, here is our sinfulness, and here is this man who is without blemish, who is without sin, who is perfect. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, and here it is, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Transferred in the blink of an eye to the kingdom of heaven because he heard his voice. And he knew and was convinced of his sinfulness. And he was convinced that this Jesus is the Christ and that he is able to save And his only appeal is to the Christ saying, Lord, please remember me when you enter into your kingdom, knowing that he is not worthy to go with this man to the kingdom. But Christ says unto him today, that will be with me in paradise. Consider this from Exodus chapter 32, verse 29. For Moses had said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. Even every man upon his son and upon his brother that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. To receive the truth of Jesus Christ. To to understand salvation to the degree in which we realize that we have been thus saved by the blood of Christ. This is the blessing of today. And I submit to you that there is no greater blessing tomorrow than to wake up and to know that Jesus Christ has saved you. Sinners sinking deep in sin. John chapter 10 verse 27. What did he say? Jesus the Christ. My sheep hear my voice. There it is. If you hear my voice. Who hears? My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. His sheep are following him. Crosses on their back. That is the reality of discipleship. That is the reality of following Christ. That His sheep hear His voice and they are following, carrying upon their backs the crosses that belong to Christ. What a wonderful burden to carry. And they're not just walking with this cross, but they are equipped following Jesus With the sword. The sword of the very same Holy Spirit we see in chapter 7. The sword of the Spirit. Ready to battle with the full weight of the counsel of God. And with the full weight of the mercy and grace of God. When we encounter those unbelievers who are yet to realize their salvation. Here's what the sword of the Spirit does. It is not able only to destroy, but it is able to take down, to beat down into the depths of sin so that sin is unearthed. And it, in the flesh, man becomes weak and exposed in his sin. And in that very same sword is able to lift him up. To relay the truths of Jesus Christ. And then the third point, do not harden Your heart. Who is it speaking to? It's saying you. We learned this in 
elementary school, and I don't even remember what they call it. It's the subject of the sentence, rather. Do not harden your hearts. Who's the subject? You. I. Do not harden your hearts. You do not. It's a command. And here we see God revealing the truth of His sovereign grace and salvation, but also pointing to man's responsibility. He's saying, I am alone the Savior. I have sent the one who can save Jesus Christ, but you better not harden your heart. You, man, are equally responsible. You do not. You must respond appropriately to the gospel. And then four, harden your hearts. Today, if you hear His voice, you do not harden your hearts. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. What we understand about the hardening of the heart is that as we are responsible, hardening of the heart produces something. Hardening of the heart with just a small sin begins to create this culture and this mindset in which we sear the conscience what how hardening the heart is when we know the truth but deny the truth suppress the truth in our unrighteousness and it starts off well you know it's just a little sin and as the heart is hardened as the conscience is seared we're okay we think it's fair to just keep sinning a little more and the sin just compounds and it grows And it grows bigger and bigger. And the next thing you know, we are enthralled in sin and we cannot escape. And we get to that mindset, which we talked about earlier as Christians, that we don't even want to come to the assembly because we know how wicked we are. And thus our sin is now keeping us from the fellowship with the Lord that we so need and the fellowship with our fellow believers. And we'll see the responsibility that we have one to another. And to make sure that this is not happening, that our hearts are not being hardened. This sin is not compounding. And you know, it it happens, you know, another instance to bring up. And I've done it. I'm guilty. This hardening of the heart to think that, you know, I was in high school and I worked and my mom always made us go to church. And then I had an excuse. I was working. And so if they put me on the schedule for Sunday, I didn't care too much. I missed. And I had reasons for not wanting to go. There were, like in any church, a, a number of hypocrites who would love to act one way at church. And then I would see them throughout the week and they would be behaving some other way, uh, completely alternate to that which what they said that they believed. And so I didn't mind missing. And the hardening of the heart produced this situation in which I could miss Sunday, I could miss Wednesday, and then another one, and another one. And then at some point, the heart is so hardened to the gospel. And you know it's truth. You'll even tell people, yes, I believe in Christ. I trust in Christ. And you may talk about the Bible, but the next thing that you know is you haven't been to church except for maybe Easter and Christmas. And then you're one of those holiday Christians. And then you don't even go at all. And that's just one example of the 
hardening of the heart. And some would call the hardening of the heart a judicial hardening of the heart in which this may be a judgment, some type of judgment for your unbelief and your sin that your heart is allowed to be hardened and that you will no longer hear the gospel. You will no longer obey the gospel. You will no longer follow Christ. And the truth may be that you never followed Christ to begin with. But what I would submit is that more than a judiciary hardening of the heart, this is the sovereign hardening of the heart. Because if we take a, a perspective that hardening of the heart is simply judiciary, that it is just maybe a, a judgment passed down of God, and that's it, because of our sinfulness, we would then have to recognize that every one of us would experience this Permanent hardening of the heart, right? Because we've all sinned equally. And your sin is no worse than mine, and mine is no worse than yours. And if your sin deserves a permanent hardening of the heart, then so would mine. But what I would submit to you is that on display for us is not this judiciary hardening of the heart, but the sovereign hardening of the heart. The hardening of the heart that God says, whomever I please will be saved. And whomever I please will see destruction. This is the God that we serve. We are the clay and he is the potter. So we don't want to render this as simple, simply God's judgment, though it may contain that. But we must be reminded that this sovereign God that we serve is also long-suffering. He's also full of grace for if one person deserves a hardening of the heart so does each one but God is gracious and his sheep hear his voice and he will not allow them to turn permanently and that is just the testimony that I, I myself can proclaim to the congregation but it pales in comparison to the truth of the gospel the testimony that Jesus Christ alone can save. This is a hardening of the heart that is being described where preaching is not the focus. Where maybe you once came to be fed and to be filled by the Spirit and to be hearing the truths of Christ so that you could be transformed, but now you're coming for some other reason. Now the preaching doesn't matter. It's lost its interest. It's no longer appealing to you because you're in the flesh. The heart is no longer soft and malleable. And what we see in the hardening of the heart is that our minds and our spirits and our souls are no longer affected by the message of the gospel because we are guilty of searing our own conscience. Hardening of the heart is the catalyst that brings forth every sin. Because we know the truth and we know what God has demanded. We know that what God is expecting is righteousness. And we have hardened our hearts and therefore in hardening our hearts and saying, you know what, I know God says don't do this, but I'm just going to do it this one time and then it leads to more sin. I know God says don't steal, but it's just a pen. Something so simple. I know that he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but it's just this Sunday. 
I just, I'm tired from the week. I don't feel like coming. I know God says don't lie, but I didn't want to hurt his feelings. And then we tell another one. We tell another one. And we justify our sin because we're hardening our hearts. In reference to what we see, I want to bring a few verses before you. Of course, from where it originally happened, the hardening of the heart, where we see it mentioned for the first times in Exodus. But I want to go to Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. It says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt. Though the testimony is there, I will harden his heart. Though my power is on display, I will harden his heart. The sovereign hardening of the heart on behalf of God that he is in control. How can you tell your heart to choose Christ when he himself, God is saying here, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is sovereign hardening where God to whom he pleases hardens the heart. But when Pharaoh Chapter 8, verse 15, saw that there was relief. He hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. 8.32, but this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, and then 9, verse 34, when, when Pharaoh saw that the rain, hell, and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. Chapter 10, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Remember what I said about hardening the heart? It's like hearing but not listening. He heard what God was going to do. He saw the plagues. He saw the signs. He knew it was true. But he hardened his heart. He wouldn't let the people go. He wouldn't believe on the God who was able to do all these things that his own Sorcerers, that's what they were, that they couldn't do. These court jesters couldn't do it. These demonic men, only the man of God could perform such miracles, divine happenings before them, yet he would not believe because his heart was hardened. He heard, but he did not listen. And we see it time and time again. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. In Joshua chapter 11 verse 24. It was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel. So that he might destroy them totally. Exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. Hardening the hearts according to his will so that his will may be done. And yet we are urged, do not harden your hearts. The flesh is strong, waging a, a great battle against the Spirit. And then 95, of course, do not, and from Psalm, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did 
that day at, at Massau in the wilderness. Here's the reference. Don't harden your hearts like what happened there when the Jews were wandering and thirsty. God delivered them, spared them, parted the seas. Moses didn't do it. His staff didn't do it. The men holding up his arms didn't do it. But God had done it. And they said that they knew it. And they were fed. And they were safe in the wilderness. And here is the picture of the gospel. And they still hardened their hearts and groaned for water. As if God would do all of that to allow His people to perish. They groaned against God. They hardened their hearts. And then it says it there. As when they provoked me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness. All of the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin. After their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river. Take in thy hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there on the rock in Horeb. And thou shalt smite the rock. And there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massau and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying is the Lord among us or not do not harden your hearts as the day when they provoked me the day of trial in the wilderness God is not only speaking to these people he was speaking to the people who were being delivered from Egypt this wilderness and he's speaking to his people his church now who are in a wilderness of sin. And he's saying, do not harden your hearts and forget that I, the Lord, am your God. And do not forget where your provision comes from. And do not forget where you have been saved from. And do not forget who saves you, for I am He. Do not hear without listening. Do not claim to believe without action. Do not simply be hearers of the word, but be doers. And what he is saying is that, yes, the people of God are provoking God himself. Because they know the truth. 
They know what God expects. They know of their sin and what God is doing to punish sin, that His wrath will abide and that it will be satisfied somewhere, somehow, and that man will pay for his sin if Jesus Christ does not. And we know that truth and we continue to sin. Are we not provoking God to know how detrimental sin is, to know that the wages of sin is death, and to keep sinning? What a blasphemous people are we. What a spit in the face of Christ to profess to believe in Christ and to provoke Him with willful sin because we've hardened our hearts. Because we've severed our conscience. And the truth is that the reality is that God is so good faithful, merciful, that He does not quickly punish this provocation. Because if we did, we would sin one time and we would die. But it says, for He is long-suffering to usward, that none shall perish, but have everlasting life. And this is the reality of the God who we serve. If sin is prolonged, if sin is continued in, if we continue to provoke God, sever our conscience, harden our hearts, then His wrath will come. It will come to fruition that we will see the wrath of God. Take heed. Remember the Christ of your confession. Trust in this Jesus. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, there's the message. Sin looks fun, seems fun, but it's detrimental. Appears wonderful, looks very pleasing, but the reality is that it's destroying us. Sin promises us the world and gives us nothing but death. This is what is being said in Hebrews chapter 3. There's nothing that sin can do except bring the wrath of God and that the Christian would continue in sin. This is the hardening of the heart. Willfully sinning. Here is the call upon the church. To look at ourselves and see our sin and quickly repent. Trusting in Christ. And then as we consider our own sin, to, to look out for our brother that we would remind one another just what sin looks like so that one may not be caught unaware or caught in habitual sin. Because the end thereof is death. Many have gone to the grave. Habitual sin. Hardening of the heart. But the text is saying, listen to God as He speaks through Christ. Do not harden your heart. Do not provoke. Do not anger 
the Lord your God, but serve Him as you are called to do. Why? Because what we'll see in the passages to come is that as we serve Christ, as we follow Christ, we are being transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We're, we're coming from a place that is taxing and burdensome and we're entering into the rest. The only rest. Jesus said it. Come to me and I will give you rest. There is none other rest than in Jesus Christ. And we are urged by the text to listen to the Spirit of God so that we do not allow our flesh to harden this heart, but that we would be soft, that we would be the easiest clay to be formed into the image of Christ, to be made into a vessel of honor rather than dishonor and destruction. And if you stay after the meal we'll see the reality of this place being referenced here in chapter uh, 3, verses 7 and 8. This place where they provoke God, this trial in the day, in this day, in the wilderness. We'll see just how gospel-oriented this striking of the rock, this moaning and groaning, this hardening of the heart is. We'll see how detrimental it is to the man of God and to the people of God. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. God, as we come before you, Lord, we just ask that you would uh, cause our minds, Lord, to store this information of Christ. And not to just store it in our mind, Lord, but to store it and apply it to our hearts that we may trust in it, Lord, and we may see the gospel of Christ even in the Old Testament. Lord, for it is there and it is not hidden to the man who is trusting in Christ. He said that in these scriptures, there's a testimony of he. God, we come to you asking that you would reveal it to us. Lord, that we would not harden our hearts to sin. Lord, but that you would peel away anything that is stony and anything that would corrupt us from following Christ. Lord, we ask for your spiritual blessings upon the reading of your word, upon the preaching of your word, upon the reception of such word. Lord, and we ask that as we partake of the meal, Lord, that we do so thankfully, realizing that every provision comes from you, Lord. And we just ask that uh, as you would bless us spiritually, that you would do so with nourishment from the meal, Lord, that you would bless the meal, those who partake of it, Lord, and those who have prepared it, Lord, and we do so giving you all the thanks and the glory and the honor and trusting in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I just now turned it on. Got me? Had a flashlight and the car had some batteries in it.
This morning, if you'll remember, we looked at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And uh, we looked at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And we were considering the text and how it spoke of Christ and how we were urged not to harden our hearts like those who we'll read about this morning. And the reality is that uh, we need daily repentance and forgiveness for sin because we do, in fact, to some degree, all harden our hearts at times. And we, we discussed how the fact that hardening the heart is also at the same time searing the conscience that we would harden the heart to the truths of God's Word and God's Gospel and Jesus Christ and that we know what He expects. We see ourselves for the sinners that we are and we see the sin that we commit against the just and holy God. We know that we need the righteousness of Christ and for some reason we still allow ourselves to sin. We still enjoy sin. We still seek at times after sin. And because of that, we also recognize that we sear our conscience to this degree in which we allow sin and make excuses for it. And what that does is it opens the door for other sin. It causes us to compound sin. And before you know it, uh, we if it weren't for Christ, the heart would be fully hardened and we'd have no hope. And that's what the, the hardening of the heart is. We talked about how some will consider it a, a judicial hardening of the heart. And in one respect, we can... Never rule that out completely because our God is a just God. And uh, if he did choose so to punish sin in that way that he would harden the heart and we would not be able to receive the truths of the Holy Spirit that we see there in uh, Hebrews chapter 3. If we could not receive those truths and they could not be applied to our life because of the hardened heart, he would be just to do that. He would be uh, fair in, in pardoning sin. And excuse me, not in pardoning sin, but in not pardoning sin and punishing sin. Batteries must have been bad. We'll go old school. But anyway, he would be fair in punishing that sin, for he has declared in his own word that the wages of sin is death. And that man has no hope except for righteousness. And we know that man has no righteousness except he have Jesus Christ. And therefore, if we are hardening our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're actually saying, hey, we don't need the Jesus Christ of the Bible. We don't need the salvation that he provides. But the text is quoting Psalm chapter 95. And ultimately, it is talking about these who wander in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 17. And that's what we want to read about to get to the bottom of this hardening of the heart and see what it is and not just see the hardening of the heart but Exodus chapter 17 you will soon see if you haven't before speaks clearly about the Jesus Christ who at this time was to come in the flesh and so I want to begin by reading there verse 1 then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim and there was no water for the people to drink Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you, Lord, with much sin and strife, Lord, asking that you would take it from us or that you would forgive us of the sin and impute to us this righteousness that only belongs to Christ. And Lord, we know that you're faithful to do that because you have said so and your word is true. Every man be a liar, but your word is true. And we know that, God. And we trust in in Christ because this is his word. Because he is this word. There's no other testimony. There's no no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. But this Christ Jesus. Lord, we can only offer you praise and worship. Because by the power of your spirit and the testimony of Christ we have received the truth in spirit and now Lord we ask that you would apply the truth to conform us to the image of your son Lord to make us look more like Christ to make us like Christ in every aspect of our life Lord that we would truly uh, live out a life that is trusting completely in him and none in the flesh Lord, we ask that you would give us this day an understanding of the things that are not meant for the natural man, but are reserved for those to whom Christ dwells in in spirit. Lord, we ask for your discernment. Lord, we ask to see Jesus Christ in these passages. We thank you, God, for all your many blessings. Lord, we just pray that this time be fruitful because of your presence and because of the truth of your Son who died on the cross the remission of sin. We thank you for him. Lord, and ask that you would receive our worship and song and in fellowship and in the reading of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a, a lot really going on here when we consider these people. Now we know these were the people of God. And we have to understand that there is always the literal interpretation and then the spiritual interpretation, how this applied to the people who were present in the time and how we must also apply it to our own lives and see the truths of the gospel and how it has changed our lives and how it should change our lives and how we're to respond in it. And so we get to this passage in chapter 17 where the people of Israel have been scared They're the people of God. They've come under captivity. They're a sinful people. You and I are a sinful people. We can identify in every way and likeness with these people of Israel who are wandering in the wilderness. We're at this present time wandering in the wilderness ourselves. It's a wilderness of sin. It's the world. We're in it. We're not of it. We can't be like it. We're we're to be called out of it. But still, it is a wilderness. It's not our home, the Bible says. 
For those who truly know and trust in this Jesus who is the Christ that we've seen throughout Hebrews and most, uh, most importantly that we've seen in the last few weeks as we discuss verses 5, 6, and 7, and 8. And so we get to this point. These people have been delivered. We see this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And what it tells us is that he was seeing the signs from God that Moses was able to perform. Some even mentioned with this staff in hand. And he's done these things that God has commanded him to do so that his people may be delivered from their captors. And what we see is every time when it looks like Pharaoh may just let the people go, his heart is hardened. And he hears the message and he hears what Moses is saying, but he is not listening. And we talked about that this morning, that this hardening of the heart seems to be exactly that, that they are hearing, but they're not listening. It's kind of like so many people who hear the gospel and say that they are believing in the gospel, but they don't listen so far as to execute, to follow this Christ who they claim to believe in. And so that, that really is the issue with, with human flesh, right? That we may hear the gospel. Some, even as Christ, when we look in the book of John, as he is uh, preaching himself, some even would believe, it says, but for fear of the Jews, they would not confess him and were led to believe. And it's, we have every indication that they believed that he was Jesus, that he was the Christ, but they would not confess him. Therefore, they were not saved. It's a battle of flesh and battle of spirit. And we see it here with these people. They've been delivered now at this time from Pharaoh and he chases after. He's defeated again. He's hardened his heart so well, and God has allowed this in his, in his uh, sovereignty. God has hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he is even being punished for the punishment that God was bringing upon his own people. And he goes after, he loses life, they lose children, all the plagues, and we see time and time again a sovereign God at work, and then the people have now been delivered. And we see it. Multiple times it seems that they're wishy-washy, that they're thankful one moment that they've been saved and the next moment they wish they never left captivity. That's the battle of sin. That's the battle that the church is in, that we've been delivered from sin according to Christ and He has declared it. Victory over death. We've seen it in Hebrews chapter 2. We've seen it in Hebrews chapter 1 that this Christ who has gone to the cross has defeated once and for all death and sin. He's conquered sin, and yet we run back to it. We say, whew, it's a little rough out here being a, a righteous man. Let me just uh, engage in a little bit of this sin that I love so much. And the people of Israel were groaning. And they're wandering here. It says, the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed from stages, <clears throat> by stages from the wilderness of sin, it's, it's depicted so clearly for us, this wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. You know, the reality is for a people who are wandering in a wilderness of sin, there is no water to drink. There is no living water by which we may quench our thirst unless it be at the foot of the cross. And so here's where we begin to really see Christ in this scripture. These people are thirsting people, a sinful groaning people who have so much to be thankful for. 
Because they're the people of God. They've been delivered from their captors. They've been provided for every inch along the way. Think about it. You have walked and seen the seas part way above your head as far as you can see. They're parted. You're walking on dry ground. God has delivered you. And you think for some instant that He won't provide for you in the future. It's amazing. And we think, man, I'm not as dumb as they are, but we are. You're in every way as dumb as these people. I am as, as ridiculous about what Christ has done as these people. He's delivered us from sin. And what do we do? It's like we want to run over there. Back to sin. Why? Because we kind of, even though it's killing us, we kind of like it, right? That's what sin does. That's, that's a, a fleshly addiction that whatever is killing us, we consider it whether it be alcoholism or drugs, overeating, cigarettes, whatever. People, the thing that is killing a person, he's running back to because he likes it. And so we have these people here that are in this wilderness of sin and there's no water for them to drink. But why is there no water? If this water that we're talking about in the literal sense, we see it in the spiritual sense as this Christ whom we're to take and be thirsty no more. And Christ said it himself. The water I have for you, you won't thirst again. You drink from this well, and it's not one you'll have to come back to and fish this bucket up three or four times. It's an everlasting well. It's a well whose end is not known. And, and even when we see that again in the book of John, that he's not talking about the, the woman at the well is talking about a, a well being hand dug, like Jacob's well, that is one being hand dug and the other being provided of God, the source unknown, the source divine. And there's two different words there that we see in, in the Greek that are, that are describing two things, kind of like John the Baptist and Jesus himself. The light that is the reflective light, that is the light of John the Baptist, we have a different word there, than the light used of Christ being the essential light, the light from which every other light derives its, its light. And so we have the same thing described for us here, this water that is Christ that we should thirst for, but the people aren't looking for that. They're looking for what they want right then, what will pacify their thirst for just a little bit of time. Now keep in mind, these people have been journeying for however long, and they're not dead yet. You don't see any withered. You don't see any, uh, that, from any indication in Scripture, that are, are, are suffering, need rehydration. There's no dehydrated uh, Jew described here in the Bible. But what we see is they're, no water for them to drink and they're thirsting. And what is the first thing they do? It's the very thing that sinners today do when they don't have what they want. They pout and shout, cry and whine. And it says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. That's exactly what we do when we sin or someone sins against us. We quarrel with that person or we quarrel with ourselves, or we quarrel with our spouse. We quarrel with the bank or the person at Walmart in the line. We quarrel about all sorts of things rather than going to the source. These people should have been on knee before God praying that he would meet their needs. But rather that's not what they did. They go to the man who's seemingly in charge here, Moses, and they have a beef with Moses. And you know what happens in the church too? That 
someone doesn't like what somebody else does and rather than go to them or rather than pray about it, they want to badmouth them in the church or they want to go to the pastor or the elder or somebody else and say, well, so-and-so did this and I didn't get my way and, and it happens. Every church has little things come up like this. But what we should be reminded about is that we have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And that when we're thirsting, when we have a need, we can go before Him in prayer and supplication with fasting or what have you and trust that whatever He does is good. And that's exactly what God was doing because we'll see here, He's moving these people closer and closer and He's changing these people and He's doing what He sovereignly does in salvation for His church. He's causing the people whom He's kept whom he shepherded, whom he has seen to be fit and made sure that they were well taken care of. And he's causing them to see, yes, I am the one sustaining you. And so even in their groaning, God is showing the people, you need me. And you haven't made it this far without me. We saw this morning the reference made in Hebrews chapter 3 to these people and their Temptation and the trials that they were going through and that they were provoking the Lord, he says. Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? None of this stuff came from me. And that's, a, that's another issue that we have, right? Trusting in self. Trusting in flesh. These people had an issue. And what were they doing? They were going to Moses as if Moses had the answer. A while back, I was talking to, to Rusty about nothing in particular, and we got on the subject, and he was going through the application that they have the questionnaire uh, for eldership at their church. And one of the things that they asked were several questions, and one of them was if someone in your church had a loved one in the hospital and they were on life support and they needed to make the decision to either keep them on life support or pull the plug, what would you counsel them to do? And I thought about it for a second and while well, I was thinking, because that's a serious question, right? Rusty tells me the answer, and, he, it, and it's rather uh, a rather wise counsel. He says, we don't make the decision. We consult the people, meet with them, and as pastors and elders, we instruct them to look to the Lord for the answer. You don't come to the pastor or the elders or even women to some degree you can, but come to your husband for the answer. But your husband and the pastor and the elders should be directing you to Christ, directing you to the Scriptures. And so these people were coming to Moses as if Moses had the power to part the sea, as if Moses had the power to make Pharaoh, excuse me, let these people go as if Moses could provide food by the word of his breath. And we know that that's not true. And we do that. We have a problem and we look to the flesh for the answer. Very seldom do we have an issue and go immediately to God in prayer. Very seldom do we have an issue and not think, that, hold on, well, my tire's flat. I mean, if you get a flat tire, first thing you do is think, well, I can change this, right? Or Barbara probably calls AAA. Whatever. I mean, she's got a, we, we all have a plan for these things, right? And nine times out of ten, I bet those plans rely on the flesh. And here's what's being shown to the people and to the church even today. 
Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? I, I can't do it. Why do you test the Lord? Why would you provoke Him? He's, he's constantly taking care of you. It's like uh, a teenage child. They have everything that they need, and when they don't get their way, they pitch a fit, right? Well, I don't have this. Yeah, but I'm, it's Christmas time. You didn't get what you want, but I've been taking care of you all year long. The other 364 days, right? And this is what God is showing these people, and this is what Moses is proclaiming. Why do you test the Lord? He's faithful. Just like we see in Hebrews, where it talks about Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. It goes on to say, but Christ is faithful as a master. And that's what they'll soon see. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Well, hold on a second. You were praising and worshiping and trusting in the Lord when you left, and now all of a sudden it's Moses' fault. Boy, it sounds like sin. Sounds like sin. We're doing so good. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And then... As soon as we're doing bad, we blame it on somebody else, right? Couldn't have been anything that I've done. Couldn't have, been, couldn't have been my spiritual condition. They were thirsting for water, but the problem was they were just like the people that we see in the Gospels, the multitudes. They were coming for the fishes. They were coming for the loaves. They were coming, as Christ said, to be filled, but not with the Spirit, but not with any any reverence to God, but they were coming to be filled in the belly and then they would get up and play, right? Just to get up and play. And Moses said, why? They said to Moses, why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock and thirst? They forget that Moses is just preaching the gospel. Moses is saying that God is our salvation. I didn't save you. I didn't bring you out of Egypt. The God that we believe in brought us out of Egypt. God has delivered you. God has provided for you. And they won't listen. They won't have it. Moses, being to this extent a type of Christ, goes there in verse 4 and cries out to the Lord saying, Moses as the intercessor for his people is crying out. And, and what do we do? It's such a wonderful picture of the gospel. We're like these uh, these people of Israel here were like these people wandering in the wilderness. The good news is our intercessor is God. He's God in the flesh. They had Moses and Moses would go and speak with the Lord, but we go to Christ. And in the name of Jesus, we go before God and He is there, as it says, seated at the right hand ready to ever make intercession for us. And that's what He's doing right now. As we call ourselves worshiping, as I butcher the sermon, because I could never preach it like it ought to be preached, Christ is there making intercession. And Moses is crying out, representing this type of Christ, saying, what shall I do to this people? Not Moses' will, but God's will being done. We see later, we know how Moses is. He gets a little angry, right? He might get a little wild with that staff. Christ is not like that. Christ has come not to do His own will, 
but the will of the Father who sent him. And in this instance, we see Moses doing the same thing. And, we'll, and it's good to see those failures later because we know that Moses isn't the greatest. Moses isn't to be esteemed higher than Christ. And no, no angel is to be compared to Christ in Hebrews. We've seen it so many times. But Christ is preeminent and he is the premier. And so Moses speaks with them, what do I do with these people a little more and they will stone me. This shows us Moses is no savior. Moses is no sacrifice. Moses is no lamb. Moses is no propitiation. Moses didn't want to be stoned. And I don't think Moses was willing to die for these people. It doesn't seem. At least in this instance. He was, he was crying out to the Lord probably like you and I would do. If we thought we were about to have to die because these people were mad at us. He says, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water will come out of it that the people may drink it. And Moses did so on the side of the elders of Israel and he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us? I want to lump those together so that we can see the beauty of the gospel in that. Moses is spoken to by the Lord. Remember, a type of Christ before the incarnation. He's spoken to by the Lord and he says, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. How does Christ fulfill that? Christ comes into his own and his own what? Receive him not. They hated him. They loved him one minute when things were going their way, when they were being fed, when they were being healed, when they were bringing sight to their eyes. And in the moment that he's proclaiming that he is the Christ and you better trust in me to get to heaven because I and the Father are one, they want to kill him. They seek to lay hands on him. This is the picture here of Christ. Passed before these people. Christ passed before his people. And then it says this. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. What did Christ do? A chosen few. A chosen few he took with him. Even the son of perdition. So that the prophecies would be fulfilled. And so that Christ would be betrayed and he would be the sacrifice. So we have this picture, pass before the people, take some of the elders of Israel with you and take in your hand your staff which you struck the Nile and go. Staff is to some degree symbolizing his rule over the people, his power. We see the same thing when we consider Esther and the king had to extend his staff that she could come in or else she would be killed, even though it's her husband, to come before her. He had to be extended this scepter, this grace, this mercy. And Christ is the one who is extending these things. This is the staff by which he rules the staff. Not that has the power in itself because we know the power isn't, only lies with Christ because he's divine. 
But here we have this wonderful picture. It says, before I will stand before you there on the rock. And you shall strike the rock. I'll stand before you. Who stood before the people? Do you remember the sign? Here is the king of the Jews. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. Christ said it. Before the people, here he is. And what's better than what we see with Moses is, is he's saying, he's saying uh, you'll come to this rock and I'll stand before you there. Christ is the rock. And the rock is before us. For some, a stumbling stone, right? A rock of offense. For others, it's salvation. Christ is this rock here. Behold, I stand with you, and you shall strike the rock. What does Moses have to do? He has to strike the rock. What does the Bible tell us about Christ? The very people that he's saving, stricken him. Isaiah, right? 53. His own people smite him to bring forth this blood, this water that would save, that would quench every thirst. The very ones who will benefit from the rock being struck are the ones doing the striking against the rock. And in essence, to put it into a spiritual perspective, for Christ to save Tim or for Christ to save Charlie, Charlie and Tim must put their sin upon Christ and place Him on the, on the cross. He must take our wrath, the wrath of God reserved for me. And it must be passed to Christ. And what do we do? Every chance we got, sinful man, spit on him. He hit him, beat him, bruise him, not a bone broken, lift him up and crucify him. And I can't blame it on anyone else but myself. And you can't blame it on anyone else. But your sins place Christ there. Stricken just as the rock. You shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And this is what Christ is saying. This is what Christ has done. This is my blood take drink he says i am this living water you'll never thirst again but the reality is that it had to happen this way had to be stricken had to be beaten anger brings forth the savior (coughs) wrath brings forth the savior sin makes the need for Jesus Christ. And after they're done hitting this rock, the water comes out of it and the people are pacified. These people are pacified and quenched in a temporal sense. Very temporal, very short period. We all know you can only go a day or two without water. They'll need it again. 
But what Christ has done is a permanent quenching of the thirst. He was pierced and he gave up the ghost, the Bible says. Blood and water pouring from his side. Such a sobering drink that the people of God would thirst and have Christ to quench that thirst. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he named this place because of the quarrel. Now think about when we consider Calvary's cross. It's a wonderful place where we go and we find redemption, we find forgiveness of sin, we find righteousness, we find a Savior there once and for all. Every sin, past, present, and future covered if we so believe in this Christ and the blood is applied. But in the other sense, we can't name this Savior so wonderful if we don't see the quarrel that took place with flesh and sin to bring him there. And Moses named this place a place of provocation and quarrel because of what had to happen there for the thirst to be quenched, that the people of God would rebel against him. But in, the, in that, they were provided for. And that's exactly what the cross is. That's exactly what Christ has done for us as we have gone and stricken him, blasphemed him, spit upon him, denied him outright. What does he do? He goes to the cross so that he may provide the much needed spiritual sustenance that every man must have. And then we consider again where, where it started there. He says, you know, pass before the people, take with you these elders, and behold, I'll stand before you on the rock. This is how we see the, the dual nature of Christ, the humanity and the divinity coupled together, that they cannot be separated. We have a rock that is Christ, a rock that is sure, a rock that is hard, that is steadfast, a chief cornerstone we see in the New Testament. And this is our Redeemer. He is our fortress. That's what a rock is. It's strong. It's tough. Impenetrable. And what we see is that we must call upon His name. The people came to Moses and he could do nothing, but Moses knew where to go. Moses knew that he must go to God. The church must realize we're just like these people and we have no intercessor but Jesus Christ. And that He is the rock. He is the power to rule. The staff is in His hand. He is this living water. And this blood that runs forth is that which cleanses the soul. That which provides redemption. Blood more precious than gold and silver. And so anytime that we look and see in Hebrews chapter 3 this this uh, typology that is reverenced back from Exodus chapter 17, we see that it's not merely just a place of quarrelsome, but it is a place where a quarrel took place and God provided. 
And that Jesus is this provision. He was the manna, he said, from heaven. And I guarantee you he was the rock that, uh, he was the rock and the water that flowed from the rock. Christ is the only sustenance that his people have. He's the only thing that we can feed on. He's the only water that we can drink. And he is altogether necessary for eternal life. And he's altogether necessary for salvation. Eternal life's not the best part. I've said it before. But salvation and reconciliation to God, this is why we partake of Christ. Because he's sufficient as the propitiation, that which Moses could not do. He's the one whom we are called to trust in. And we'll see that in Hebrews chapter 13, that we'll take it even to a greater level, that we'll experience what, just what has happened for the people of God from Exodus, from Genesis forward. What Christ is doing and what the people of God are showing us in typology and in foreshadowing of the gospel. But we must remember that what we are called to do is not to provoke the Lord, but to trust in Him. 100% of the time, every time, first and foremost, He's not a, an afterthought. He has not a plan B. He is saying, don't provoke me. Listen to my word. Heed the gospel. Heed the Christ that I have brought heed the Christ that is the Savior. He is Apostle, High Priest, and Messiah. Son of God, Son of David. This is the Christ that we believe in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you once again, Lord, we're just thankful for your word and its truth. God, we, we see so many times how you have delivered your people and, and nothing... Uh, compares to how you have delivered this people from sin. Lord, how you've delivered me from sin. Lord, how uh, you can look at me, such iniquity, with such wrath that I deserve, God, and look at Christ and pardon me because I am His. Lord, we just pray that uh, for those of this church that there's that reality in the life that when you look to any one of us, Lord, that you would see Christ and that you would be pleased to know that he has satisfied every debt. Lord, we just pray that you would make us uh, so much more joyful than we already are of Christ and that you would make us um, a herald for his message, a herald for the messenger, the propitiation. Lord, we just ask that you would save people Lord, even in our very own community, Lord, if, and if you not draw them to this church, Lord, but that they would go to Bible-believing, Christ-exalting churches, and that, Lord, you would somehow use us to do that. We would be so thankful. Lord, and we just uh, praise you for all that you've done and all that you continue to do, and we thank you for uh, all the provisions that we see each day, Lord, for the breath that we breathe, and we just ask that you would... So call us and use us and provoke us, Lord, to use that breath um, so that every, everyone would proclaim Christ and that we would proclaim Christ to everyone that we see. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.